1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Changing out there. There's a storm coming, Harry. Just like last time. The Ministry of Magic is pleased to announce the appointment of Dolores Jane Umbridge as High Inquisitor to address the falling standards at Hogwarts School. Things at Hogwarts are far worse than I feared. Enough! You have been told that a certain dark wizard is at large. This is a lie. It's not a lie. I saw it. We've got to be able to defend ourselves. And if Ahmed refuses to teach us how, we need someone who will. Every great wizard in history has started out as nothing more than what we are now. If they can do it, why not us? It's sort of exciting, isn't it? Stupefied! Breaking the rules. Who are you and what have you done with Hermione Granger? You're a really good teacher, Harry. The Minister's going to have a full uprising on their hands. It's your turn now. Discipline your mind. We're in this together. If Voldemort's building up an army, then I want to fight. Look at me! everybody and welcome to is it yours the movie review program i'm paul spataro and i am once again joined by my friends dave and holly weeder welcome aboard guys it's like i never leave this place <laughs> <laughs> well, you have like a regular room here but holly's the special <laughs> guest hello 
So it's good to have you guys back. And as per usual, we're here to discuss the Harry Potter series. And we are up to the fifth entry in the series, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. That came out in 2007, directed by David Yates. And everybody else, I was looking at it, and I guess pretty much everybody in the cast of any significance is the same as in the past, with the exception of... uh, Dolores Umbridge. She's like uh, the and only. Ivana Lynch. And who, who am I missing? Ivana Lynch. Um, Luna. Luna Lovegood. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. She wasn't in this previously. So, yeah, th- those are, the, I guess, the two significant characters that we get now that we hadn't previously had. Uh, you know, otherwise, other than, you know, uh, what's, what's his name? Grop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, and uh, Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, oh, yeah. We forgot Bellatrix. about her. No, no, no. Oh yeah. Okay. You know. Um, so we got three. <laughs> all right. So, and but and they're all at various levels. They're they're all significant characters, but none of them has a tremendous amount of screen time. Not in this one, I guess. Except yeah, Umbridge. Yeah, there, there's yeah, Dolores Umbridge. I guess has the most of the three, and and she's also the most significant to the story in this particular film. But they they all play something of a significant role before it's all over. Um, I guess I'm going to start off with coming off of the Goblet of Fire, and had and I, I keep forgetting now. Had you guys read this before seeing it? Yes. At this point, every movie from here on in we had read, I had read before. That's right. saw the movie. Yeah, this is the one that I would because after Goblet of Fire, I was like, I'm reading the books before we go watch the next movie because I want to know what happens. So right. I had read this book before the movie came out. I read each one before I saw it, but this is the first one that I read when it came out brand new. You know, I, I ordered it from Amazon. It was delivered to my door the day it <laughs> was released, and I had it read within, I guess, within a week. And uh, it's, You got through it within a week? Yeah, that's, oh, <laughs> this was a well, slog. Yeah, this, this was a slow-reading book. And that's yeah. where I was going to go with, with this is coming off of the Goblet of Fire – and coming off reading this book, where what was your level of expectation going into the movie? I was hoping they thinned the book a little. And they did. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness. I could tell you, and I, I previously said when we talked about the Goblet of Fire, that was the biggest disappointment for me as far as translation of book to movie. I'm I'm fine with the movie. I, I've you know I could sit and watch it and I enjoy it, but. I was the most disappointed with the translation because I thought the book was far superior to the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, so now then this book came out, and as you said, this one was a little bit of a slug. This was a slow-moving book. Uh, you know, the books were getting more mature. Each book was getting a little bit more mature as we went along. Uh, and this this one kind of hit the point where I felt like it it kind of hit its peak. Uh, the, the ones to follow it were mature as well, but I think they kind of hit a level. They, they plateaued. Uh, but this one, to me, is still a, a step up from uh, from the Goblet of Fire as far as the level of sophistication with the emotions and everything. But that also, it, it felt like it took J.K. Rowling a little while to kind of get a grasp on that, of, of how to make that flow well. And the book was, I guess, poorly paced in that it was a very slow read even though I read it in a week. Because um, there was there was a lot of emotional things going on in it, and, and a lot lot more of that than action. 
In fact, book-wise, I would say this one has the least action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so my expectations going into this movie were fairly low. Not that I was expecting to not like it, but I wasn't expecting to love it. And I could say this one <clears throat> is the opposite of The Goblet of Fire for me because this one is the one that I thought translated best. In other words, uh, the movie... I think the movie is actually superior to the book. We've said the same thing we this week, and we were watching it. So, and that's this is the only one that I would say that for. Mm-hmm. But I, I felt like the the movie kind of got the right tone. It was paced better. Uh, it got the emotions across. It it did feel more sophisticated, but it it just you know like I said I thought it just flowed much much better. Some of the performances were I, you know I th- I think the actors have matured into the roles. Uh, and I say that mainly that the younger actors are maturing and becoming better actors, but even the older actors feel much more comfortable in their roles. Michael Gambon was a, a standout for me that he, I felt like he was getting into the skin of Dumbledore. Yeah. I started to accept him more as Dumbledore in this movie. I still will always think Richard Harris was better, but <laughs> I, you know, I understand we couldn't have Richard Harris anymore. And I felt less inclined to want a Richard Harris clone at this point. Mm. Whereas previously, I, I would have liked to, for them to have found somebody who was more like Richard Harris to play the part. Uh, but in this one, he, you know, there, there is uh, this. There's a lot of emotions going on in this one with with Dumbledore and Harry, and you know, the whole thought process that you know Dumbledore is trying to steer clear of him. Because Voldemort has that connection, and he doesn't want Voldemort to be able to read into what's going on based on him interacting with Harry. But then Harry, being a teenager, you know, an adolescent, uh, you know, feeling very betrayed by Dumbledore at this point. So there's definitely a lot of emotion going on, and I thought this movie did a good job of presenting that without actually having to really give us a lot of exposition about it. Right. I I told this to Dave the other night. Um, I do wish they had added a little bit more of what actually happened in the book in the end, like where Dumbledore was explaining to Harry why he made that decision to try to stay away from him and um, explaining the prophecy a little bit more, but I, I get it. I get leaving it out. Right. I thought the ending scene played much better in this than it did in the book. The book, again, was a little bit slow, and it didn't feel... I mean, th- there is the scene, I, and I think I think the, the chapter is actually titled The Only One He Ever Feared, or something like that, when Dumbledore con- confronts Voldemort. And that's, that's the only point where the action kind of ramps up in the book a little bit. But I thought the movie still played it better. Right. I, thought, I thought, you know, the confrontation between the two of them is, is very well played, and, and, and you know, you could see where, you know, they, they're kind of evenly matched, effectively. And Dumbledore's probably his superior, but not willing to get quite down in the mud as far as Voldemort will. And that, you know, that kind of evens the playing field a little between the two of them. That's good. I, I love that scene, too. The whole wizard battle, it's almost like, this is really what a wizard can do. This is... You know, this is there was some stuff going on. Like he could totally drown Voldemort right then and there, but he's too busy protecting Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, he wouldn't get his, his hands dirty as much. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, there's the life and death, death stakes that are 
played in the movie exactly the way the audience would see them because, and I assume, you know, everybody knows this spoilers here. Uh, Sirius Black gets <laughs> killed by Bellatrix Lestrange and Harry doesn't believe he's really dead. Harry thinks he could come back somehow. He'll come back as a ghost. He'll come back one way or the other. Maybe he's, you know, he's just transported somewhere and he's going to make his way back. As the reader, you're thinking the same exact things. Mm-hmm. So Harry is definitely your your point of view character in in those scenes. Although Harry's, I guess, always our point of view character in these books, <laughs> but even more so than usual in that particular scene because you're, I think you're as a reader you're experiencing the same emotions that he is, and as a viewer the same thing. And I, I don't want to make this too much of a review of the mo- the book so much as the movie, but you know they're, they're intertwined in a way that I can't totally separate. Right. That was actually something I thought they did almost better in the movie because you know in the book bellatrix like blasts him with a red curse and then he just falls through the veil uh, and then that's when that's why harry thinks he can come back in the movie they made it clear that she hit him with the avada kedavra the killing curse Mm -hmm. although he had a moment to pause and smile at harry which is kind of weird because you know you get hit with the curse you're dead but (laughs) they did that because they didn't want it to have any confusion he's dead he's not coming back that's why they did that in the movie and i thought that was good but harry's reaction when the sound drops (gasps) out oh man i was crying last night watching it yeah david yates he'll he'll direct the the rest of the harry potter series knows how to hit you with emotions and that was one of the first times he balled up a fist and knocked me in the face yeah definitely absolutely and this i have a weird correlation here is when Voldemort is effectively trying to possess Harry. Mm-hmm. Mm. It reminded me, and this is this is definitely a stretch here, but it reminded me of The Exorcist when the demon jumps. Are, are you both familiar with the movie? Yeah, more than I'd like to be. <laughs> okay. When the demon jumps from Linda Blair's character to Father Karras, and you see Father Karras fighting with it, and his face is changing until he can get this, that spirit out of him. And that's mm-hmm. what it reminded me of. And I don't know if, if there was any intent behind that whatsoever, but you know, you can't help where your mind goes. That's what, what I envisioned. And it made the scene much, much more powerful for me because that movie is, to me, incredibly intense. So that kind of imbued this movie with a similar intensity for that scene. I can see that. I mean, it's a, it's not much of a stretch, but it is a little bit. Yeah, there is a stretch there. Oh, I, I understand. I actually, it totally is a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I can't remember exactly how that part of the book played out because it's been a little while since I read it. But I really like that scene again, watching it last night. Like you could see what was going on in Harry's head, how he was trying to attack him, how Harry was breaking down the, the wall. I really liked that mm-hmm. visual image of him like punching the mirror and thinking of his friends and his loved ones to 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 get Voldemort out. <laughs> yeah. And I love that Dumbledore at that point can't do anything. And it's it's again played quietly, which is something not a lot of directors know how to use properly. Right. But then and then Harry kind of almost gets this level of comfort because he understands that he because he has this love of his friends that he has what Dum- what what Dumbledore what Voldemort never will. And that kind of levels the playing field. He doesn't feel as overmatched anymore. At least right, that's, like, that's that's how I interpret it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Dumbledore's telling him it. it's not how you're how you're alike. It's how you know how you're different. 
Yeah. So it's it's you know there's some powerful stuff there. Now, on the disappointing side, uh, I really thought the scenes in the book with Neville's parents were very oh, powerful. Yeah. And we didn't get that in the in the movie. We just kind of got a reference to it and a little, you know, I, I guess a scene in the mirror where you know you see his parents, but you didn't get the, you know, the power. Uh, and it was a, ver- a very difficult thing to read about, but where his parents are being tortured mm-hmm. and they and they basically go insane, and then they're in the hospital and and they see them, and they're you know they're if I remember right they're very childlike at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, his they, mom like shuffles over to Neville and gives him a, a candy wrapper, and his grandma's like, "Throw that away, it's rubbish." And then Neville keeps it because it's from his mom. That scene, I wish they had included Saint Mundugos in in there really badly. Even if they left out Gilroy Lockhart, which would have been really funny. <laughs> yes, we, um, we should touch yeah, on I that really too. Wish they had done that. <laughs> but yeah, that's apparently they didn't want to build another set. That's really what it came down oh. to. They didn't want to make the St. Mungo's set. But in the book, you, yeah, they also run into uh, Gilroy Lockhart, who still does not have his memories back uh, from from the uh, second book. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, there is a, a comical scene with him uh, talking to them and, you know, still not even knowing who he is. Right. And he's still trying to sign autographs and crayon. In crayon, yeah. <laughs> So that's one of the, one of the very few lighthearted things in this book, yeah. Because this is a very dark book, and the movie is not quite as dark as the book, and I think nope. that's where it is better, or that's one because of the it ways doesn't that's dwell better. as much. It's weird. Uh, there's a really vivid contrast in like the the music, like it's all light and fluffy and blah blah blah, and then you've got freaking umbridge walking around oh i just want to that is one character that she wrote so well i hate her with a passion (laughs) and she's walking around like torturing kids with quills and oh i just want to the kitten hates yeah (laughs) yeah she and and she's she's very well portrayed in in the movie uh, because she's just as hateable maybe not quite as hateable but pretty darn close to as hateable oh my gosh uh and she's just every so time she does that little <laughs> and, yes. Dave last night walked in and he was like, "Oh, just as soon as she walked on screen." <laughs> oh my goodness, she yeah that car- that actress what's her name again? Emilda Staunton did such a good job, and she's not even as ruthless or mean as she is in the book, but she played it oh, so yeah. well. <laughs> she's kind of like Louise Fletcher as Ty Wynn. Oh. She just nails that. Yeah, it, there's definitely the same type of characteristic because she's clearly power hungry mm-hmm. and willing to manipulate things to whatever end it takes to get that power so oh. <laughs> who else did we say was new in this one who else do we have we have tonks is new oh yes yeah we don't get we, much of her but we get enough uh, to to kind of she's we definitely see more of her in the book but then you know that that always makes sense uh and luna love good yeah, and Luna is a very, very strange, intentionally so character, uh, but very lovable in both the book and the movie. Lovable so much that that's why the actress was cast, that she loved that character. She had overcome, was it anorexia or bulimia? Bulimia, I think. By just reading Harry Potter and working on it. And so she knew more about Luna than the directors did. She came in with like a complete knowledge of this character. Yeah. 
They're like, well, of course we have to cast her. She basically is the character. She used to write letters to J.K. Rowling back and forth and had correspondence with her before they even started casting for the movie, like when she was just a young girl as a fan of the books. Right. Oh, I, I didn't know all that background <laughs> for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's that's really terrific, actually. Um, yeah, she, yeah, she was perfect. And she... Uh, she made like some of the jewelry that she's wearing in the movie. She actually made it like the prop department would come in like with the radish earrings and she's like, Oh, well I have mine that I made. And they're like, yours are better. Yeah. <laughs> we'll use yours. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I, sometimes I forget where I'm going. Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's not a problem. Believe me, take it wherever you want it, want it to go. Oh, and, and I guess our other character is, uh, what's it called? Professor Trelawney. And she's probably the one that's a little better fleshed out in the book that I don't feel I don't feel we quite do her justice in the movie because I think we have more sympathy for her in in the book because we we, we learn more about her moment of uh, actual clairvoyance and how it impacted them and how it impacted uh, Dumbledore and why that's you know that's why he keeps her on so I I feel like you know we got a little bit more. Uh, of a feel for her whereas the other characters that you know i think we we kind of got a good feeling right from the start with um the book the movie i think it kind of serves notice right from the start that it's going to be more intense right with with the scene with the dementors in the in the uh playground because that's definitely more threatening than anything we've seen in the previous openers in little Wingen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked, you know, the way that that uh, Dudley was presented. You know, he's he's the same bully that he usually is, but then he was totally taken out. And then Harry, you know, despite all, helps him, and you know, walks him back to the house. But then, you know, the aunt and uncle are, the, you know, the usual tools that they are. But you know, they're they're more for comedic purposes, I think, than Dudley at this point. Agreed. Oh, <laughs> that scene where they're walking him out to the car and Uncle Vernon's like mouthing across the street like <laughs> he's he's not well. He's not well. We're just going to take him <laughs> not well. <laughs> but again, those are several things that they changed. But I'm okay with that. I, I didn't really have any issues so far. Like I'm, things that they took out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I thought it was it was pretty well played. And then uh, what's I can't even think of what her name is. The uh, the woman from the neighborhood who comes over and uh, and and helps him, Mrs. Fig, Mrs. Fig, <laughs> yes. and and you know, she, to have the fact that you know she she's a squib and and she's actually working for Dumbledore, keeping an eye on Harry all this time. I think that that's a great touch. Although she kind of appears out of nowhere, she was mentioned in book one, but yeah, you know, yeah, she, like, she she had definitely been mentioned before, and and you know. When she came back, I remembered who who her character was, mm-hmm. and just you know to find out that that she's been in on it the whole time is just I thought that was just very cool. Of course, she she is pretty much as bumbling as she acts because then when she comes <laughs> to try and testify on Harry's behalf, she can barely you know get a fact <laughs> which was great. She describes the kids instead of the Dementors. Yeah. Speaking of Dementors, what did you think about them, Dave? The change in them and they still YouTube scare call? me to death. <laughs> If I remember right, this is the character model that they used in Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. Yep. When you're on the train ride. 
Which you know, is scary. Don't get me. Well, I turned like white as a sheet when that hand hit the window. <laughs> not on the. I mean, on the train ride, it's more like they did in movie three. Um, the, but in the. Uh, oh, I know. Um, in the in the Hogwarts ride, it's more from this movie. Oh, is that the uh, the what's it called the the one where you're going through the bank? The other one. Um, the Forbidden Journey. The Forbidden Journey. Thank you. I can. So you're in the basket and you go through Hogwarts Castle. Okay, yeah. And you come face to face with a Dementor. Didn't do my heart any good, but <laughs> no, it's it, it, and that ride in particular. Uh, you know, you could see on the video. There's like a video that you could see of yourself, and mm-hmm. my kids were laughing at the look on my face, and they, <laughs> you know, they thought it was the usual. Oh, Dad's pretending to be more scared than he is. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no, not so much. <laughs> see, I had this I... image of myself falling out of that seat every <laughs> every moment of the ride. Yeah. <laughs> See, I think that the the Dementors actually lost a little bit of the terror, just just a little bit, because they made him a little bit more hands on when he, you know, grabs Harry. And to me, I like the ethereal creepiness of him in, in three. And they changed the hood, but the hood is a little bit scary because it looks like like somebody suffocating is what it looks That's like. Kind of true. But ultimately, they still, you know, they they start sucking their souls out of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I think they were still very. You know, very impressive. Uh, I, Still I very scary. Yes. I, I, I have a hard time saying which one is a more scary image. I, you know, I, I probably would have erred on the side of keeping the same model just because you don't want to change too much from movie to movie. But mm. it didn't. I don't think it hurt in any that they did change the look a little. Still scared Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. Not your fault. <laughs> And you know uh, the other the other thing that's interesting, or you know one of the things that's interesting, I think, is that we get Mad Eye Moody, but it's not the same guy we had last movie. Right, it's the actual Mad Eye Moody. <laughs> yeah, and he's not as really he's not as warm and fuzzy to Harry as we as 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 the foe Mad Eye Moody from the last movie. Who you know? Who kind of buddied up to him to try and get his, uh, you know, his his trust. Although that brings in something I had a big problem with, the whole they're going to headquarters scene to Sirius Black's house. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, don't you know, don't break ranks. If one of us is killed, hello, we're gonna be fly on brooms down the Thames, past a boat full of muggles, <laughs> past Parliament. We're gonna be <laughs> one of the one of the most watched rivers in Europe. Let's just flaunt our abilities of being magic. <laughs> like, come on. In the in the book, they went all up like, around uh, England, and they're freezing and going back and forth and trying to lose any trails and not get sighted. So that was a little weird. It was a cool shot. But I think in the movies, they've pretty much been consistent with the thought process that normal muggles are pretty much oblivious to all of this that's going on around them. Yeah, I'll give you that. You know, and, and and every, every, once while, every once in a while they'll, they'll actually show, you know, regular people sitting there while the stuff is going on. And, you know, you're thinking, oh, how could they not be aware of this? So I, I, the, the Douglas Adams, somebody else's problem <laughs> type of idea. Which they yeah. did do whenever they got to... Um, the house, which I can't think, number twelve. Um, you know, the they show the muggles in their ho- in their home, like <laughs> watching, watching TV. TV yeah. The yeah meanwhile, meanwhile, the houses are moving, and you know, 
yeah, it, it's it, it's definitely consistent in in the movies. So I I was kind of okay with that. I'm trying to think is if there's anything else that they changed from the book to the movies that you thought was particularly important. They removed the through line for Tonks and Lupin, and they're they're building up to a romance. Yeah, in in the yeah. movies, and I, I mean we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but in the movies they kind of just it's just there, whereas yeah, in right. the books they kind of explain it a little bit. I didn't particularly like the look of Azkaban that much. Um, I mean, I, I like it, but I don't. <laughs> I like it, I guess, in the context of the movies because in the books they explained like Barty Crouch Jr. escaped and they buried his bones. In the movie, it's just this big triangular building. There's no land around it in the middle of the ocean. So, movie-wise, I guess that makes sense and it looks cool. Hmm. Yeah, I I give you that. It's 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 more of a vis- just a visual thing to kind of grasp a hold of and say, "Well, that looks cool," and that's what that is. But it doesn't really seem as functional. Hmm. So I, I I have this all actually on while we're talking, and uh, Voldemort is actually trying to uh, possess Harry as we speak. <laughs> oh, and that whole set of um, Ministry of Magic is yeah. just amazing. I want to see it so bad. They talked about they had taken in, uh, in inspiration from the underground, the the subways, the tube. I'm sorry, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of a lot of the areas are very minimalist, you know, just tiles and and clean, very clean looking. Mm-hmm. And then there's other areas where there's things being, you know, kind of protected or whatever, the prophecies and everything. Uh, Wait, what just happened? Can you hear me now? There, we're back. Okay. Okay. So I was just talking about how uh, the prophecy sets forth that either Harry or Neville is the, I guess, effectively chosen one who is going to be the one to... uh, eliminate Voldemort and the reason Voldemort wants the prophecy is so that he could eliminate whichever one that is before they can actually do anything to him now which they don't explain in the movie at all yeah and I don't know if you know the, it, the, that that's a little bit of a, a flimsy plot line I think because if he's concerned that either Harry or Neville is going to be the one that could take him out why wouldn't he just kill or have killed both of them right like, what, why does he care? Is he, <laughs> is he really concerned about sparing the one that's not going to do it? Because I don't think so. You know, he, he's killed in the past with, you know, with no uh, hesitation whatsoever. And I, I'm speaking about Cedric Diggory right now. Yep. So that's, that's the one area that just didn't make total sense to me. Uh, wasn't there more to the prophecy of the book? Oh, yeah, there was a lot more. But we never really <laughs> found out the full picture. Well, I think if if my memory is correct, we get the whole prophecy in the book, but the prophecy still doesn't specify which of the two of them it is because it gives some vague descriptions that could mm-hmm. describe either of them. Right. And the whole point is that he doesn't know which one it is, but he chooses the one that he thought it was, and he chose the half-blood, which was more like him, instead of the full-blood, which is Neville. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there was two people that could have been the chosen one and and Voldemort chose him basically. So now this movie I think is the longest so far at 138 minutes. I don't think uh, really? 
I don't think any of the other ones were longer than that. I thought and this I, one was pretty, sh- like, the shortest ad- adaptation overall. Well, because it's, it's also the longest book. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I know that... brisker than the book, thank you. I, I, di- I didn't check the other running times, so I'm saying that off memory. That I, I know the running time on this is 138 minutes. That I know. And I'm thinking that's longer than the other ones that we've had so far. But, uh, and it cost $150 million to make. And you want to t- venture a guess as to the worldwide box office? It was over. It was just over eight hundred million domestic. Uh, I, I'm, th- I'm thinking I have the. Uh, I th- I'm thinking what it's giving me is box office mojo, and I think it's worldwide, but it's giving me nine hundred and forty million. <laughs> Which is funny. <laughs> that was not far off. Yeah, but that's that's even by today's standards, and we're talking uh, almost twelve years ago. Even by today's standards, that's a pretty pretty darn good. Uh, take i think while we have a good connection it's probably a good time to say how do we rate this one okay well holly's like nodding at me (laughs) i rated a a high jaws too i think it's it's one of the more well-rounded movies in the series especially considering the source material was so it was such a sludge it really was um i'm gonna say uh a lower well i'll say a high jaws too as well yeah that was because it was really good yeah i'm I'm gonna say that as well i think again this is the one that i thought translated best from a book to the movie uh and that's partly because as you said dave it was a little bit of a slug to get through it (laughs) but it's not that i didn't enjoy the book it's just that it was just so different that i didn't enjoy it the same way i enjoyed the other ones uh but i really enjoyed this one and let's see now uh if we can place this in perspective to the other ones and i'm going to go to you first dave you have them rated so far as chamber of secrets as the top then sorcerer's stone then goblet of fire and then prisoner of azkaban where does this fall in that row i would put it just below chamber of secrets because i think chamber of secrets and in uh the first two they really got the book but they didn't have that much of a challenge in adapting it yeah, I, I uh, so so you have this as the second number two on your list. Number three. Wait, number, which? Yeah, because you had Chamber of Secrets, then Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, number two. Yeah, after Chamber okay. of Secrets. Now, Holly, you had it as Sorcerer's Stone, then Prisoner of Azkaban, then Goblet of Fire, then Chamber of Secrets. So you went one, three, four, two. Right. So Wait. I'll put this one as the new two. So this okay. So you're both putting this as number two on your list. Mm-hmm. Now I had it as Prisoner of Azkaban, Chamber of Secrets, Sorcerer's Stone, and Goblet of Fire. And I am also we're going to be all the same. I'm going to also <laughs> put it as number two on my list so far. And we still have three three more to to do to to see where we're going to fall on all of these. But Hang over on for a second. My, my son my son's got a silly look on his face and he's got his arm raised like oh, like he's in school. <laughs> What'd you say? You hated Goblet of Fire. <laughs> Tell him we already did Goblet of Fire. Yeah, we, we well, we yeah, we we're we're past that already. <laughs> this but, one was uh, like you said. I mean, overall in the movie, there are more things that I'm happy that they cut out than I wish they had left in. I would Does agree. I, I think they streamlined it, and I think that was 
the reason the book was a little bit tough to get through at points was because it wasn't streamlined. So, you know, by doing that, they made it a, you know, they, they took the pacing problems of the book and they eliminated them. Right. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying on that one. So, so any, any, any last thoughts on this one before we call it a night? Do you guys feel like it was easy to follow? I mean, I'm trying to separate my knowledge of the book <laughs> and just watch the movie. I think it was worked well. Do do you guys think the same way? It's it's hard to totally divorce yourself from the book when you read the mm-hmm. book before you see it. But I've had that on every one of them. So uh, I think having read any, virtually any book, when you see the movie, it gives you a greater understanding of the characters and a greater appreciation for where it's going. And it becomes hard to look at it from the perspective of if I didn't know that about the characters. So it is difficult to say... But I think, I do think that this movie does a better job of just, again, just kind of pacing it out. I think they both let us know what's going on and where it's going. I don't think either one has a failing as far as that goes. But I, I, like I said, to me, the biggest strength in this movie is pacing as compared to the book. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not a standalone movie. I mean, you have to have seen the other ones. Well, you're, yeah, you're five movies into a series, right? Though. Exactly. But yeah, I don't think. Yeah, you. I don't think if 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 somebody showed you this as your first, you know, first time you're seeing anything with Harry Potter, I don't know if you would become a big fan based on this. Although that wizard battle was so cool. Yeah. I think that's probably one of my favorite scenes. I could see somebody seeing this and saying, "I want to see more and learn what this is all about." Right, but I can't see somebody totally appreciating it on you know on a to, you know on a full level without having a greater knowledge than just what's shown in this movie. I will say a couple of things I wish they hadn't have changed was like the owls at the end. I would have loved to have seen them bring in other wizards so they could do their owls and then watch them do so well, like all of the DA. Uh, Dumbledore's army do so well on their defense against the dark arts, just, mm. uh, you know, despite Umbridge, <laughs> um, even though she wouldn't let them perform magic. I wish they had been more consistent on the Patronus. Well, that's, you know, we didn't really talk about the Dumbledore's army aspect of the movie. Uh, and I, I think, you know, the movie and the book for that matter, but I think that's kind of a cool thing. It's it's that the kids are now getting to the point where they're saying we can't depend on the adults to just take care of us. We have to be proactive. We have to be ready to defend ourselves. And and I think that's, that's pretty big and that's pretty important to where the series is going to go from this point forward. Uh, and I did like that when they're practicing the Patronus charms that we we get kind of to see each person's personality and what the patronus manifests itself as mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a very cool thing in the in in the movie and in the book agreed you can't depend on the adults fred and george just drop out <laughs> they do it with style <laughs> yes they definitely do it with style and fred and george are always one of the sources of uh, comic relief in in this series and Again, as as we've said with each movie so far, this is just so well cast. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I, I have one of uh, that saying whenever um, they're in number 12 Grimold Place and they are apparating all over the place. And <laughs> Mrs. Weasley's like, just because you're allowed to do magic doesn't mean you have to whip your wands out for everything. <laughs> that does I seem like that. such a real parenting <laughs> moment. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I love it. I have it on a plaque on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, I love uh, it. All right, so I'm going to thank you guys for coming on again. Thank you for having us. And, oh, it's always my pleasure. And the next time around, we'll be doing uh, the Half-Blood Prince. We're, we're coming rapidly up to the end. Well, not so rapidly, because it's been a while since we did Goblet of Fire. Yeah. But we're, yeah. we're, we're making our way to the end of the main series. And then, uh, you know, by then we'll have two or three more movies to cover. You've lost all that. Sorry for.